ask you to pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you. Okay? Now, let me tell you, it's in your own best interest that you pray with faith and diligence. Because most of you are polite enough, you're going to sit here for the next half hour, whether I communicate well or not. So it might as, be, might as well be that it, I communicate well. So you pray for me, and then I'll pray for you, that you hear well. Okay? Do that right now. Just pray out loud. I have a mic, so mine's louder, but you have to overpower me. Lord, we just thank you that it's your spirit that leads us into truth and revelation. We ask that you would open our eyes open our minds, we remove the, the cages and the limitations in the name of Jesus, that you would be exalted and glorified. Amen. Amen. You can keep praying, but you have to do it under your breath now. Hans Christian Andersen wrote a uh, story a number of years ago called The Emperor's New Clothes. Many of you know that story of this emperor who loved clothes. Loved to look good, thought that was great, and loved to show off his clothes. And these two tailors came and said that they had the best clothes. They developed this fabric that was absolutely stunning and luxurious, and uh, it was amazing, but only intelligent people could see it. So the king sent his advisor when they were building, making his, his new clothes, and the advisor didn't want to appear like he was unintelligent, so he said, oh, what, a, what lovely outfit that you're making. And he came back and he told the emperor how great it was, and so when the emperor got it, you know, he was amazed, but he didn't want to appear like he was unintelligent or foolish. So he raved about these clothes, and then he actually had a big parade that he could show off his clothes in front of the whole town. And so they go, and all the people lined up on the side, and they're seeing them, and nobody wants to appear to be unintelligent. So everyone's raving about the clothes until some little child says, but he has nothing on. <laughs> and everybody went, ah, They'd been deceived to go along with the crowd. Put that aside. Mary and I were watching a, the, a cooking show, and I noticed that they often, when they're supposed to be doing something, they would be preparing something else. So they're supposed to be, they've got an entree coming out, but they would prepare the, the stuff for dessert, and they put it in the refrigerator. So I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to prepare something and put it in the refrigerator and then go on to something else. And we'll come back. I'm just telling you so you don't get lost in the process. Huh? He's in the refrigerator. Then the next part's in the refrigerator too. Uh, we've been talking about kingdom relationships, about honor and dignity, accepting every single person. Uh, I want to say, why do we do that? The reality is that the value of every individual is the fact that we're made in the image of God. That has been the foundational, fundamental belief through history, that every person is made in the image of God. And irregardless of how you perform or what you achieve or what you look like or any other uh, attribute, 
you're valuable and worthy of respect and dignity because you're made in the image of God. Stay with me. God values individuality. Matthew 10, 30 and 31 says, even the very number of hairs on your head, he knows, they're numbered. He values individuality. You all know this, but I'm gonna repeat what you know just to, to fit it in. You have a fingerprint that's unique. There are over seven billion people on the planet and another four or so, five billion that have lived prior to now, and yours is still unique. Now think about that. How do you get that many variations on the end of your finger? That's pretty amazing. But you know what? Evolutionists have no explanation for that. There is no reason why the survival of the fittest means that you should have a unique fingerprint. Thank you. You're afraid I've got to knock that over, huh? Probably a good idea. But not, not only do you have a unique fingerprint, you have a unique iris print, a unique voice print. And your DNA is yours alone and doesn't match anybody in history. That's pretty amazing. God values individuality. But he's also the giver of life. What is life? If you're a scientist exploring Mars, any single cell that you find that is alive, you would say there's life on Mars, right? Medically, life is defined as a heartbeat and a brainwave, right? You've all seen those movies on TV where, you know, when they, when they, they say, okay, we declare this person to be dead at some point when their heart stopped beating for a period of time and there's no brain waves. It's quite am amazing. Mary and I watched, the, or Mary did a program on imagination. And they said something really interesting. They said, man is the only animal that's actually changed its environment. Most animals adapt to their environment, but they don't change it. But throughout history, we've actually changed. We've built things, and they, they attributed this to, this is scientists, they attribute this to imagination. We have the ability to see what doesn't yet exist. That's pretty amazing. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, that's not what we're talking about this morning, but I just thought it was cool. Imagination. Okay, every single person is valuable. Put that in the fridge for later. We have a coming election on May 18th. Yes, I'm going to talk about politics. I know that that's a touchy subject. Many of you are very loyal to your party, and that's fine. Relax, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But, recognize this, we can disagree and still love one another, right? My loving you doesn't mean I have to agree with you. Your loving me doesn't mean you have to agree with me. So we love one another, but 
Question is, does the, does the Bible give us any direction? I looked very carefully. I could not find anywhere where it said in the Bible, vote labor or vote liberal or any other party. Though those words are actually in the Bible, you know. You could actually make it say that. But that's not its intent. What does the Bible say? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 11 says, by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. But it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Chapter 14, verse 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. And then one more, chapter 16. In verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne or a government is established by righteousness. Interesting, it says righteousness exalts a nation. Probably surprised you, you probably thought it would say something else. Maybe equity, opportunity, mercy. Actually says righteousness exalts a nation. Most of us are aware of nations that have a corrupt government. And we see what happens. In the late 1990s, I was traveling in Indonesia when the president uh, of Indonesia at the time, Suharto, resigned in 1998. And at that point, the average income of a laborer in Indonesia was about $50 a month. Yeah, that was right, 50 a month. But I read an article about Indonesia owed the International Monetary Fund $36 billion. And they were asking to have that forgiven. But shortly after that, I read another article that the president's family was worth $50 billion. Yes, that was a B. $50 billion. So the president could have paid the entire debt of the nation and still had $14 billion left over. He would have had to slum it, but I'm sure he could have lived on $14 billion for the rest of his life. Yet the average laborer was making $50. Righteousness exalts a nation. Corruption doesn't. Someone said to me, but aren't they all corrupt? Now here's where we get a little bit stepping on toes. In politics, they call lying spin. But it's still deceptive and manipulative. Oops, I went too many pages. I've got a lot of pages to get through, though. No. You know, they can get away with saying almost anything. I actually, now, for those of you who are visiting, I'm an Australian citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen as well. I'm a dual citizen. We've lived here this time for about a year, so I'm not totally in touch with the, uh, the political system and the different parties. But I, I'm, fine, I'm trying to catch up. But I've 
had something sent to my house that said one party was saying the other party had cut 14 billion out of education and 700 million out of hospitals. And I went, wow, that's an awful lot. How in the world do we have any education? But I decided I'd look and see. Now that other party says, this is what was actually given to education and they gave this much more. Went, well, how do you call more a cut? So I actually did a little research and found out that the, the party that's saying they cut actually says, we wanted them to give this much, but they only gave this much. So we're calling the difference between what we wanted them to give and what they actually give a cut. Now, I don't care what kind of math you do, when you add something to something, it's not a cut. Okay, I'm, I'm intentionally not trying to name parties, I'm not, but I just wanted you to understand how some of this works. By no definition of the word cut or addition is what you wanted to happen to what happened, a cut. But they're saying it all the time. So one of the things that happens in politics is that they try and generate fear because fear motivates people. So this party says, if you vote for these guys, they'll destroy the planet. These guys say, if you vote for these guys, they'll destroy the economy. These guys have already destroyed the, uh, the medical system and these guys are gonna destroy uh, your, your income, they want you to be poor. And it's all to generate fear to get you motivated. They're all destroying everything. So what's the most important issue? Is it the economy? Is it climate change? Is it wages? Mary and I were walking in town the other day going to uh, the chemist to get our flu shot. And some guy jumps out of a car and he steps up to me and says, can I ask you what's the most important issue in the, in the election? And I was like, he said his name was Leon Compton from ABC Morning Radio. Uh, which, I don't listen to the radio, so I have no clue. I had no idea who he was, I didn't know what that was. But he puts this mic in my face and he said, can I ask you what's the most important issue? I said, yeah, would you like to shut off your mic and maybe I'll tell you because I don't think you're gonna like what I say. He says, no, I don't wanna influence you. So I told him, problem is, he didn't influence me before, he influenced me after because he did not use what I said on his show. He could edit afterwards. He didn't have to influence me before, but he could edit afterwards. So what's the most important issue? I think all these issues are here, whether it's wages or climate or anything else. And there's one issue that far exceeds that. In my opinion, it is the absolute most important issue that we face in our culture. And what is that? It's abortion. You're going, what? Why is that the most important issue? I'm going to tell you. But how did we get to the point where we murder innocent, defenseless children and it doesn't get a mention in our elections? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. (laughs) 
I want to give you a little bit of history on this and hopefully help you understand how it's communicated. Okay? In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision that has affected most of the world. They determined an unborn baby is not a living human being, and therefore not uh, covered by the tenets of the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution guarantees life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to every person. All men are created equal, it says. So how did they eliminate the guarantee of life? They said, this is not a human being. So they changed the terminology. They called it a fetus instead of a baby. It said it's kind of like a cyst. In fact, interestingly enough, I heard a American professor this last week refer to an unborn baby as an illegal parasite similar to a cancerous growth. Is this a scientific, medical, or moral decision? So remember, living, science says a single cell that's reprodu reproducible. Med medicine says a heart beat and a brainwave. A human being is defined by having separate DNA, separate blood type, separate fingerprint. So is this, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, a scientific, medical, or moral decision? No, it's not. It's actually a legal decision that's not based on science, medicine, or morality. It's based on legality. Could the Supreme Court have got it wrong? In 1857, about 100 years before this decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that black people were not human beings. Was in the question of slavery in the U.S., they said the Constitution guarantees the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They said, okay, this doesn't apply to black people because they're not human beings. They got it wrong. There was no scientific or medical or moral explanation for that. It was simply convenience. But see, what happened is they allowed the question to be changed to a woman's choice to do what she wants with her own body. Now, you've got to have to listen very carefully to the next few things I say. Are you going to misunderstand? About 80% of Australians in a survey say they believe a woman has a right to choose what happens to her own body. Almost 80% of Americans believe it's wrong to murder an unborn baby. It just depends on how you ask the question. Now here's what you have to listen carefully to. I believe... A woman has the right to choose what happens to her own body. But by no scientific, medical, or moral definition is an unborn baby in her womb her own body. Now you can take part of what I said and said, Russ said, 
A woman has the right to choose what happens to her own body. Absolutely. But by no scientific, medical, or moral definition, whether you're carrying a baby in your arms or in your womb, it's a living human being. How can any society be considered civilized if we murder defenseless babies for convenience? Just a few weeks ago, the governor of West Virginia signed into law a bill uh, allowing full-term abortions. It means a baby born at full term could be killed. And someone asked him, what happens if that baby survives the abortion? In, in other words, what happens if that baby is born alive? His response was, we'd leave it to die. How did we get to that point? I want to challenge what you think. You know the old Star Wars thing, or the first Star Wars movie, where uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, these are not the droids you're looking for. We're going to cloud your mind, and we're going to tell you, these are not that. Part of our political climate says, these are not the issues you're looking for. Leon Compton didn't want to know what I thought was the main issue. See, I heard the term sanctity of life twice this week. Both said there was no regard for the sanctity of life. One was in connection to the synagogue shooting in California. One was in connection to the murder of Justine Damon Ruschek in Minnesota. They both said there was no regard for the sanctity of life. I heard it uh, in regard to the Christchurch massacre. I want to ask you, when we've done away with the sanctity of life of the most defenseless, how can we expect anything different in our society? We're getting what we've asked for. Now you understand why I think it's the most important issue. Back to the emperor's new clothes. Let's pull that out of the refrigerator. I want to challenge you. We need to stop going along with the crowd. Just because society has changed the semantics, killing unborn babies, a living human being, is still murder. Don't go along with the crowd and pretend for the sake of not looking unintelligent that the emperor has something on when he's actually naked. Jesus said he came to bear witness to the truth. John 18, for this purpose I've come, for this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. If I'm a follower of him, I'd be remiss if I refuse to bear witness to the truth. What does that mean for all of us? I'd be foolish to think that there isn't 
somebody in this room or somebody who listens to this podcast who's been involved in abortion. The good news is that Jesus' grace and forgiveness covers us. We're all sinners. Every one of us are sinners who are saved by the grace of God. He forgives. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. The Bible doesn't actually grade sin. We do. Sometimes we say, this sin is really bad. This sin is okay. The consequence of any sin is it separates us from God. The Bible says all have sinned. That means me. That means you. So when we get judgmental about other people, we're actually falling into the trap of trying to grade sin. You know that lying is as grievous to God as murder. Ooh, politicians are in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) He's faithful and just to forgive us. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. There's one party in this election that wants to make abortion federal. It's now a state issue. And that means that it would be part of the Medicare system in public hospitals. And if I understand correctly, it would make it illegal for doctors not to perform abortions. Righteousness exalts a nation. Please consider that as you vote. I'm not going to tell you who that is. You need to find out. But the wonderful thing is that God's grace is sufficient for all of us. No matter what we've done, His grace is sufficient. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. To me, that's my favorite part. He doesn't just forgive me, he cleanses me. I become a new creation. I don't have to walk into my future chained to my past. He can cleanse me. Mary had a picture uh, a few years ago. It was very similar to the word that Michelle shared, but she saw a bride walking down the aisle backwards. The bride being the bride of Christ, walking into our future, looking at our past, rather than looking at the king. Jesus cleanses us. He's here to cleanse this morning. For whatever we've done, we've all sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages, a result of sin, is death or separation from God, but He cleanses us. I'm going to just give you a moment. If there's anything you need to bring to Him, if we confess our sin, it doesn't mean confess to a priest or to a pastor or to any person, it's confessing to Him. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. I can't forgive your sin. He can. So if there's anything there, take it to him. Lord, we just stand amazed at your goodness and your grace. You're an awesome, incredible, loving king. Thank you that you redeem us. Amen. After the uh, 1857 decision of the Supreme Court, it took 100 years to remedy that. That said black people are not human beings. It took 100 years. I hope it doesn't take us that long. But it will if we go along with the crowd and pretend the emperor has clothes on. We allow the semantics to change the, what is actually the truth. I would encourage you, be thinking as you vote. This is the only time in the three years you'll hear me talk about politics. Okay? It's not something I do normally. That's not my focus. My focus is Jesus and the kingdom. But there comes a time, regularly, where that affects how we live. Obviously every day, but when it comes to the political realm, how we vote. So I hope that that affects you. But why don't we stand?